1: everyone wants to be happy even if they don't really realize it it's, it's a goal it's something people want to be And when people want something there are plenty of people who will say they can provide it for little effort in return for some money and that seems to have really muddied the waters a lot so yeah it's, it's a very murky field that's one thing i ended up trying to combat with the book trying to say look there's all these different claims but what does the actual evidence say?
2: you're listening to the science focus podcast from the bbc focus magazine team We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.
0: Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor of BBC Focus magazine. Everyone wants to be happy. It's an inbuilt part of being human. But what exactly is going on in our brains when we feel happy? And what can we do to ensure we live as happy a life as possible? In this episode, Jason Goodyear, the commissioning editor of BBC Focus magazine, speaks to Dean Burnett, a neuroscientist, comedian and science writer, about his new book, The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why.
2: Your latest book's called The Happy Brain, The Science of Where Happiness Comes From and Why. So, is there any particular reason you chose this uh, as the topic?
1: Uh, yes, but it's not the most logical reason. It's quite stupid, uh, and it's a bit of an elaborate backstory. But um, the first book, the idiot brain, that was well that came about due to a series of ridiculous circumstances, which I never planned. And you know, it, I, I assumed my first attempt at a book would be my one and only attempt. Like I thought, well, someone like me shouldn't be writing books at all. I got this opportunity, I'm just going to splurge of my knowledge in it, hope for the best, and then then we'll see. And I assumed it would be like, you know, we'd do some business for a few months with people who read my blogs and stuff, maybe a few libraries would buy it, and then it would all fade into the background, and we'd all move on in our lives, pretend it never happened. That's not how it panned out. It's gone far better than anyone expected, and a lot of uh, international success and so on. So it wasn't long before my publishers and agents were saying, so what's the next book about? And like I said, I hadn't planned on the first booklet and the second one. So I had that very, very palpable, difficult second al- album problem. But I, hadn't, I had literally had no idea what to write about. And so I spoke to lots of friends and collaborators and fellow writers and scientists and people I know. Saying, well, what do you think I should write about? And you know, they all give me ideas, but they were all different ideas. And while they were genuinely good ideas, they're all like, they're all things I wouldn't probably do as a blog post, but nothing I could really think could sustain a whole book and the one thing that people kept saying when like they kept seeing the ideas and i kept knocking them back was well at the end of the day you just got right about whatever makes you happy and i'm a very literal person it turns out so i started taking that absolute face value looking at what what makes you happy and why and um essentially just snowballed from there really so here we are with a book i've written all about what makes you happy and why for the most ridiculous reason i know but there we go so um there's
2: lots of Kind of wishy-washy, self-helpy theories being bandied around about how to achieve happiness and where it comes from and so on. But it, it's actually incredibly difficult to pin down, isn't it?
1: That's like one of the first things I realised. Because when you look up what you know, how to be happy or well, the, the science behind happiness, and I use science with air quotes there. It, it, like you say, it always comes down to oh, there's these five tips, or you've just got to train your brain to do this, or if you're if you're lucky, they'll invoke you just got to boost your dopamine or your endorphins or your oxytocin levels and they lose a, a fragment of neuroscience to give it some credibility but it you know, we're not talking about uh, a basic thing here we're talking about you know, sort of a, a, a sort of a mental state of being really it's um it's a complex emotion it's it's a frame of mind it's a sense of well-being like how you define happiness can be really varied and complex so the idea is is one simple trick to it is a uh, is kind of well, it's misleading. It's an oversimplification, and if I'm being generous, I think a lot of the time it's just a misunderstanding of how complex it is. I'm not saying there's anyone being actively mendacious about it, but it wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be the case. So yeah, there's lots of you know, because everyone wants to be happy, even if they don't really realize it. It's it's like it's it's a goal. It's something people want to be. And when people want something, there are plenty of people who will say they can provide it for little effort in return for some money and that seems to have really muddied the waters a lot so yeah it's, it's a very murky field that's one thing i ended up trying to combat with the book trying to say look there's all these different claims but what what does the actual evidence say because a lot of people don't seem to really get into that that much and i thought well, well i'll do that then i'll do that
2: yeah well anyone who does buy the book and picks it up will see um that there's it's really crammed with science just by looking at the uh, the appendices and all of the <laughs> yeah. paper references
1: yeah that was um well, like my, my, I did, I did the um, the endnote libraries. You know, you just t- c- c- collect your references as you go along. And um, for the first book, the did brain, I sort of found I had about 187 references, which I thought was quite a decent amount because um, it's all stuff I sort of knew already. It was like it was my stored up knowledge for things I like to talk about. And then this book, I checked in the endnote like 740 references. thought so I really have. It was weird to sit down and actually learn new things. Like, I'm in my 30s now. I've already got a doctorate. I don't. I thought I was done with learning, but no, apparently not. It just keeps coming.
2: Yeah, so what, one of the things that you mention in the book, which, I mean, some people may find surprising due to the, the sort of theories that are lobbed around a lot, is this, it's particularly difficult to study because there's no sort of happiness lobe in the brain that uh, neuroscientists can really concentrate their efforts on.
1: Not really, no. It's um. This is one of the things I talked to Professor Chambers about. Like I had, I had initial ideas to think I'll try and track down this happiness low using fMRI scanners, you know, the neuroscientist stock and trade there. But again, it's not that simple. the it, 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 I think the first chapter is dedicated to a whole thing about this this notion that the brain works in this sort of rather straightforward modular way. Like it has a it's a separate bit to every single thing. That it's capable of and you just put someone in a scanner and make them do something and the relevant bit of the brain lights up and you can say that's the bit of the brain for this that and the other and you see so many studies like this now and like i think i've quoted scenes once for this is the bit of the brain for buying apple products this is the bit of the brain for voting preferences this is a bit of the brain for belief in certain religions and like that's not how it works at all it's massively extrapolating from you know basic raw data so the first chapter is all about these different techniques which People claim to be able to use, but don't actually work that way. So, but it's something as complex as happiness as, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not one thing. It's more like an umbrella term for different experiences and sensations and moods. Like you can be euphoric. You're happy if you're in a state of euphoria, but you can also be content, relaxed. There's also a state of happiness, but people are really euphorically relaxed. That's not a thing that, you know, the brain really lets us experience. It's really hard to be in an armchair in front of a fire (laughs) tripping your your, your intimate parts off. That's not how it works. It's a a very different sensation. But both would come under the umbrella of happiness. So the idea is just one brain bit which supports all that is uh, a misleading assessment of how the brain actually works and operates.
2: Sure. And, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, to kind of make those sort of floaty theories appear on the surface more scientific people often mention serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, other chemicals and hormones and things. But they do have a very important part to play in this sort of thing, there, don't they?
1: They do. They are, they are part of it, like, and that's sort of both. It's both a good in that at least there's that much accuracy in these claims, but it's also unhelpful because you know, like, if you want to tell a really good lie, you should be, you, know, you should build it around a, a nugget of truth, so it becomes more convincing. And this is a similar thing there, like the brain does use these chemicals, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, and so on for these sort of things. And, you know, so it it does, the way I sort of try and explain it is that the brain uses neurotransmitters like, you know, like language uses letters. There are different combinations, different types mean different things and different words can be constructed in different ways. But that doesn't necessarily mean the letters themselves are, you know, uh, intrinsically part of that. I think the example I use is that if you take the word love half of it is the letters O and E so O and E are technically then the most romantic vowels which again this is it's a similar logic though yeah, isn't it? yeah. Obviously, dopamine is used in happiness So dopamine is a happy chemical well O and E are used in love so O and E are romantic vowels and therefore if you want to chat someone up you should use as many of them as possible so like hello you? <laughs> that, that isn't a way to charm someone that's very unpleasant and terrifying and that's the sort of logic we apply here. And just because this chemical is used in the process doesn't mean it is intrinsically, you know, like a, it's not the main thing that's happening there. It's a tool, it's, a, it's part of an apparatus. Or it's like saying like a house is made of bricks, which is true, but you get a pile of bricks, you don't have a house, you have a pile of bricks. There's a lot more work, and you know, it's part of a larger process, which results in the end product, which we, which is what we're after.
2: And so one sort of um, impression I got after finishing the book was uh, social interactions seem to be very much a key item
1: at, at the base of what makes us happy. Generally, yeah. I mean, this is—it um, wasn't something I'd sort of set out to prove to anyone. Like, I did want to emphasise, I think it came across okay, but I've sort of told more people since, that I didn't have any particular theories or hypotheses or agendas to promote or access to grind when I started this book. I was just genuinely... It's genuinely a journey, as they say. Like they, um, they wanted something a bit more "quote unquote" Ronson. The publishers use <laughs> that word. So, uh, I see what they're saying. Yes, and um, so I thought, well, like I don't know how this works. Like I know there's a whole field of positive psychology and workplace motivation. Like, but I, I, don't. I'm not part of that. And I thought, well, I obviously I know how the brain. I have an understanding of how the brain works. I can speak the uh, language, as it were but it's not my area. So I thought, well, I will look into it from the ground up and my thoughts were, well, I'll sort of see what I can find based on fundamental neuroscientific principles and the public evidence. And if I can come up with, if I arrive at any conclusions or theories, which are familiar in the mainstream, that suggests that those are the more accurate ones because there's so many out there. And that was interesting for me to sort of start from, start from scratch. And look into it that way Uh, but one thing which kept coming up a lot was the importance of other people of our social interactions like it's the fact that we are such a social species that like there's a lot of the main theories of why humans became so much more intelligent than our primate cousins or any other species is that we are the most social primates that we you know we depend on the group far more than any other species tends to and that allowed us to dominate the environment but when you when you sort of dominate the environment as part of a group, then survival in the group becomes a driving factor evolution, not survival in the wild. And being you know, a successful part of a social group is a lot more cognitively complex than just running down prey animals. So we evolve for greater intelligence. But then that, that suggests that you know, if our interactions and socializations are a big driver of our intelligence, then the brain, the human brain would have a lot of parts dedicated to that. And it does, it seems so, yeah, but obviously you've got to think that, you know, happiness being an emotion or a mood, we have a lot of emotions and moods, and so many of them are, they only exist in the context of other people, like the sense of guilt, the idea that you've wronged someone without other people, that doesn't make any sense, like, you know, it's not an internal thing, happiness is internal, you can be happy without other people, but having other people around makes it more likely, makes it more complex, gives it a lot more flavor, and um, they say, like, most of the things you think that make you happy, you do as part of a group or at least a couple, you know, even down to the basic raw things like sexual interaction. You need someone else for that. That's sort of the whole point. And uh, you know, like that was a very tricky chapter to write, the whole sex and relationships one, because like my previous book was very popular in schools and uh, (laughs) psychology level courses. So how am I going to address the nitty gritty of carnal interaction without alienating half of my potential readership? That was a tricky balancing act, tricky. Yeah, so um, in
2: the, this cut sign of friendship and social interaction um, section of the book, you mentioned something I'd never heard of uh, before called the Phi complex. Mm. So I was just wondering if you'd be able to explain a little
1: bit about that, please. Well, I tried to explain that as best because I hadn't heard of it either. It was a new thing for me as well. It's it's essentially the part of the brain, like the sort of network of neurons which facilitate communication and that they, when a conversation is happening our phi complex and the person we're talking to, their phi complex essentially sync up. And the way I sort of perceive it, it's sort of like it's the neurological representation of the conversation itself. It's like this is the interaction that's happening. And obviously then both people involved in it will have essentially the same sort of activity going on in their brains because it's one conversation with, with two contributors to it, but obviously they're both being privy to the same the same event, like I think the way I sort of tried to articulate it, and I don't know if this is as valid an example as I hoped, but because I'm not a technical person, I'm very much a biology guy. It's sort of like having two games consoles linked up playing the same game. So you know, if they are like playing the same game remotely via via the, via the internet, that game exists on potentially both both consoles. Like the same game is happening on both, but from a different perspective. And the fight complex is sort of like that. It's it's the game that's being played by two consoles simultaneously. And that's, that's sort of how I could grasp it and get around it. But like I say, it was really intriguing to find stuff like that because it wasn't. this wasn't in my arsenal already. This was something I stumbled upon myself. So so yeah, so hopefully I got that across, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of other neuropods out there who know better who will tell me in exquisite detail how wrong I am when, when it's finally hit the shelves in a few days.
2: Another thing that struck a chord with me was the effect of of home and local environment on mm. somebody's um, happiness is that, you know, I'm very much, I'm you know, not a hermit or whatever, but I'm very much a, a homebody. I, you know, I like spending time in my home. And I was just wondering, you know, if you could explain a little bit about how it evolved in humans. Like, is it a survival mechanism and all that type yeah, of Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it was, uh, I think I, I looked into it because I thought my, my first attempts to look at it, at some sort of scientific stuff, were a bit thwarted by the fact that, my ideas were stupid. Always was a bit of a downside. And I sort of went home to think about it, and I felt happy when I got home. And that's sort of, you know, the, the, the mechanisms were in your head, like the the, the cogwheels fall into place. And it sort of made me think about that. Like the whole, like, you know, I think it didn't make the final cut, but you know, people accept that home is really important to you. Even the classic Wizard of Oz, like, you know, the, Dorothy saying there's no place like home. There's no place like home, even though. She's currently in a sort of magical wonderland full of you know, pixies and f- fairies and sweets everywhere. And she wants to go back to a dusty, dusty barn full of tornadoes. I mean, that doesn't sound like the most logical choice, but because it's home, nobody questions it. So we also we clearly have this deep-seated instinct to form a home and to make a home. And I, even you start looking at it, it's such a common natural instinct. Do you think that even a beehive would count as a home, a wasp's nest or termite mound or like a, ty- a beaver's dam, that's a home. Every animal, or not everyone, but most of them have this underlying instinct to form a safe place in which to reside. Because there's so much that uh, we do as you know, as biological organisms which leaves us vulnerable. We need to sleep. We need to excrete. We need to eat. We need to reproduce and look after young. It's a lot easier to do all these things when you have a safe environment which you recognize as familiar and are able to map out you know, accurately. Even things like um, elephants like they have territories, like they don't really go, belong there, go, go beyond their home territory when they're searching for more food and things like that. So it's clearly an underlying instinct to that because we, we most of the things which we've evolved through is sort of keep us alive and a home keeps us alive. It keeps us safe. It minimizes dangers because it provides a familiar environment. And even like the most logical level, if something's familiar, what well, that does tell you is that you've encountered it before and it didn't kill you and therefore it is probably safer than something new, which might kill you. And you no, know, we have this instinct to form this safe safe place, which will provide all the things. And think of a human home, they think of all the things it provides too. In fact, usually it's where we eat, it's where we sleep, it's where we expel bodily waste, it's where our family resides. So the, a typical home contains so many things which are linked to our fundamental sense of safety, our biological drives, and these are all the things which make us happy. So even at the most basic level, like if you just think of a home as place where your stuff is that's like that sort of tends to make us happier because it provides us the sense of safety and comfort warmth and security and these are all things which quiet the the more anxious parts of the brain the threat detection mechanisms and the thing just calls stress and cortisol release Uh, but then also we are complex creatures we're not just no we don't just live in a home for a sense of safety it's it's a big part of our lives we spend most of our time there and we make it our own We, we put our own stamp on it we put our personality on it If we can, if it's it's our house, you know, and some people in rental accommodation have far more strict rules. And they tend to have a lot less happiness in their house because of that, because they don't have the autonomy to say this is my home. This is more a place where I live. And it's the sort of thing that happens where like places like London, where people have to move often because rents are so extortionate and people are constantly buying and selling and, you try to move into or out of the city to to make you know to make ends meet and um, people tend to move from place to place specific location but as a result same thing happened in new york i talked to a new york journalist about this but as well the city itself becomes like a home rather than any specific building in it so you get this much larger sense of place identity You feel like you are a londoner rather than mm. someone who lives in london and these are sort of things that can happen when because humans have the brain capacity to encompass larger areas and things like that so so yeah there's so many different things that a home does for us and even back to the social interaction thing that we we may crave social interaction like most people need at least some level of social interaction to be happy or at least to know they can have it but even if you are the most egregious extroverted outgoing person you still need some downtime you still need a sense of privacy and security like even even like the most outgoing like interactive person they still have their own bedroom where they can go and be away from other people because interacting is hard work sometimes you need your brain is taxed by constantly being engaged with by other people and you need some you need privacy you, be, you need both people and privacy that's something there's two like they sound incompatible but it's just different times different times a day and different times of your life you need one then the other so you no know, that's the home provides these things provides both communal spaces for you or your family or your friends who you live with. And it provides a sense of privacy too, which is you know, we, we need both of these things. And yeah, so there's there's loads of different boxes that a home ticks in the brain when it comes to making us happy or at least happier.
2: Sure. And um, another thing that you touch on, well, me- mentioned in the book, is um, having aspirations and goals. And something I thought fascinating about that was there seems to be a sweet spot in the degree to which you achieve these goals. Um, Mm. So there's there's a couple of examples in the book where becoming too successful or too famous has actually had
1: a detrimental effect on the person's happiness. Yeah, it's a a strange one because we we want people to like us. We want to be successful. We want to be secure. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. We want to be high status. These are all underlying fundamental goals and much of human motivation according to a lot of the neuroscience research is goal directed so a lot of things we do we do with a specific goal in mind I mean sometimes that goal might be I need the toilet so I'm going to go to the toilet it's my goal to get there and use the toilet and you do that quite regularly so you know it's not really a big deal but you no know, if we also have much longer term goals that we can you know, we are creatures we have the cognitive capacity to plan ahead and envisage our lives in the future which a lot of creatures can't do like they very much live in the moment so we have this idea of what we want to do and what we want to be and that's that provides very motivational factors so like there's a chapter about work and money and things which corresponds a lot with that if you end up having a job which feeds into your your goals are whether it be you know if you want to be A leading surgeon and you have a job as a like in a hospital then that makes perfect sense whereas if you want to be like a famous rock star or something we have a job which pays the bill so you can pursue that and with a flexible schedule that also makes you sort of kind of happy because you are working towards the goal that you have in your head and jobs which distract from that they tend to make you less happy so if you want to be a rock star but you've got a really demanding job and Won't let you go home to rehearse. It keeps calling you into work. It's all shifts. You never awake at time. That can be really stressful because both the work is hard and you're not fulfilling what ambitions you have. So yeah, so like the ambitions can make you happier if you're able to work towards them. But I think, as I said, talking to Kevin Green, the entrepreneur, like people who achieve their ambitions, and then they. They can, they can be happier, like you've got loads of money. If you've got all the success you want, it's perfectly possible to be perfectly happy then. But then I think it's one thing I keep coming back to in the book is that we're not finite creatures. We don't just stop once we've achieved a goal. Like we wake up the next morning and life carries on. And the brain doesn't like that. If you don't, if you work towards a goal for ages, you've had a goal in mind for years, and suddenly we achieve it, that's great. But then that doesn't last forever. The brain isn't static. It's constantly changing. It constantly craves new things, new experiences, and a sense that we are achieving still. Uh, so then we need a new goal, or we need something else to work on. Or like if there's no ceiling on it, if you want to be a rich person, then I mean, how rich is rich enough for most rich people? That's you know, a lot of the time. It doesn't seem to be any upper limit on how rich they want to be. Even like the richest man in the world, be it Bill Gates still is still earning money. I mean, he could feasibly just stop now and never have to do anything ever again and like, you'd still have enough wealth to last him like 50 lifetimes but he's not, he's still working towards earning more money and keeping his businesses afloat and stuff so there's clearly more going on there than just achieving a certain end point and that's where it sort of becomes a bit more murky because if you've got all the you know, the basic needs met you end up graduating the more psychological needs that you need to be liked, to be admired, to be looked up to, to be respected even to be to be feared, to have power these are all potential motivations too so yeah, it, it's a very it's a tricky balancing outcome sometimes if you are the sort of person who ends up achieving your goals. I think the best way to be is to be like myself. to have absolutely no goals and see what happens, which is why I've ended up like this. Not too bad a place to be. Well, no, exactly. So I can't really complain about the strategy not working. But I'm sure there are plenty of disaster stories who use the same strategy. Maybe I'm the one exception out of the thousands of casualties which are just lying in the gutter right now.
2: So, when we're talking about happiness, I think it's it's maybe a bit difficult to talk about happiness without talking about laughter. You know, it's um, it's physical expression, if you like. So, what's the, what is the the sort of neurological neuroscience take on the link between happiness and laughter?
1: Well, there is actually a surprising amount of neuroscientific and other scientific research on laughter and jokes, which, you know, given the stereotypes, you be, might be surprised to hear. Because apparently we're not compatible, scientists and comedians. And as someone who does comedy and who is a neuroscientist, I find that rather offensive at times. But I, I, I get where it comes from, um, and I think actually looking into it more, I can sort of sort of see more where this might have arisen. This whole cliche, however accurate or inaccurate it might be, and a lot of it, according to the available evidence, uh, it sort of boils down to a sense of incongruity when something happens or when we experience something which does not conform to how we think the world works or how things should go. And it can be, it can be a visual thing, it can be a verbal thing, it can be a linguistic thing, behavioral thing. Like we, we all have this mental model of how the world works in our heads and all the components of it. When things violate that, they cause a sense of incongruity. Like this is incongruous. This shouldn't be happening. What is this? And normally that causes a sense of sort of stress or psychological stress or danger because the brain doesn't like uncertainty. Uncertainty means I don't know what's going to happen, which means it could be a risk, which could be dangerous, and I have no way to prepare for it. So the brain has this underlying dislike of uncertainty. Uncertainty makes us unhappy a lot of the time. Um, But when this incongruity occurs and when it can be shown to be harmless, uh, then it becomes pleasurable. It's like, oh, I see. There was something uncertain. And I fixed it. So I realized what it was. It was totally harmless. That's a good thing. So you experience this sort of release of tension. That's one theory, or it could be just case of experiencing a sense of reward because an uncertain thing occurred, but it was resolved with no no danger, um, and therefore good. Well done. Have a reward for that. That's good. That's like the reward part of the brain saying to you, "Good, good work there for, for figuring that out." And that's sort of what jokes do. They provide. They set up a sense of <laughs> incongruousness and then resolve it in. A harmless way or like the sense of slapstick would do that someone falls over and like breaks their neck that's horrific that's terrible someone falls over and lands in some mud and they're fine but they look they look ridiculous that's good that's so sort of, ah, that's nice that's also they've lowered their status you can feel a bit more superior as a result there so it's the social element comes into it again and it's sort of you uh, know it's constantly happening like the According to the data I've seen, like it's not—it's not that much of it because obviously it's very hard to make people laugh in, in an F- fMRI scanner. It's not the most amusing environment. But what data it is suggests that this on the brain, like there's a there's a hub in, in the middle of several lobes, which sort of maintain over, oversees all the different sensory inputs. Because obviously you can be laugh—you can laugh at any sort of sensory modality. You can laugh at a funny sound, a funny sight, or even tickling is actually like the the most sort of primitive form of laughter and primitive source of laughter. That's why you can make rats and chimps laugh by tickling them. It's actually, you know, these are animals which do laugh as well. Laughter actually predates humanity, which is quite a weird thing to think about when you look at it that way. But there's also such a massive social element of laughter. It comes back to the whole social, there's an importance of social interactions to, the, to the, just the human being and the human brain. And you know, when you think about the fact that any other emotional reaction we have, be it anger or sadness or, um, you know, sort of disgust, it's kind of brief and fleeting. You, know, you maybe start crying when you laugh and you're too sad or something. But, you know, it's like, Ooh, mm, mm, it's like a brief thing. Whereas laughter is such a loud and obvious reaction. It's so not subtle. Like, you know, if you imagine, you know, it's like, <laughs> like people often find themselves Compelled to laugh during a funeral because obviously this is just the tension, in the atmosphere makes you want to puncture it with something, and it's really I mean you can suppress it, you do suppress it, but it's very really hard to do. And a lot of that seems to come down to the fact that humour is such a is now a very much a social aspect. Again, it comes back to the it's a way of interaction. Like people can be identified by their laughs, often better than their speech sometimes. And we are 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than when we're alone. And it's, it's, it seems to have a big role in human mating. It's sort of like a, a show of, it's not like with stags like showing their massive antlers and rutting and peacocks with their big tails. Humans now use humor to seduce and, well, not seduce, but sort of show, look how quick my brain is. Look how fast and able I am to induce emotions in you. Look how superior I am as a specimen. And you know, this is a cliche that you all see comedians with women who are far, or male comedians with women who are far too good for them. And um, it never happened to me, I'll be honest. But <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I should need to put, maybe put more effort into it. But my wife would probably disapprove now. But yeah, it's it's sort of like a cultural cliche that, you know, funny men are more attractive. But then that comes into the whole cultural Versus instinctive, or like nature versus nurture thing. Like, is this because men do comedy? Are we just because we expect it, or is there some sort of underlying aversion to women being funny because that's supposed to be a male role? So, so yeah, it's very much a, that. That's that's a nice, interesting facet which I looked into a bit. But, but yeah, like laughter is so important. But it's also like it's almost like the last resort of happiness sometimes. Like even the cliches of you say you no, know, people say. At times like this, all you can do it do is laugh, or like at least we look back on this and laugh. It's like even if all all else fails, you still have the ability to laugh, even if at that particular point in time you don't want to. You know, there's still the potential to laugh at things, and it's um, it's not like the most powerful part of happiness, though. It doesn't. It's kind of fleeting, but it's always there. Like it's always like a backup. If you know, if all if it all goes wrong, you can still laugh at something, and that's you know, that's sort of like a, a useful aspect of happiness.
2: Yeah. So uh, another sort of key feature of the book is that there is a lot of p- different types of people that that you've interviewed researchers and scientists obviously but also pop stars comedians businessmen etc so how did you go about choosing the people to interview and did you have any particular favorite interviewees
1: um i mean i, I would love to say like no i'd have just- spreadsheets and databases and thinking like who is the most suitable person for this and um, who is the leading expert in this field and a few times it was you know um, Chris Chambers is like a leading neuroscientist in terms of neuroimaging and transcranial magnetic stimulation and Sophie Scott is like pretty much the go-to Professor Sophie Scott of UCL she is like the go-to person for studies on how the brain and humor and laughter works and so that's so there is that there. And Dr. Matt Wall of um, Imperial, oh, he's UCL, but the study was Imperial, I think. But his, he just released this paper on um, his peptin, the sort of neurological hormone or the neurohormone, which sort of sits atop both the lust and love mechanisms of the brain. So these are people with very relevant and very up to date experience and knowledge of the field that I was looking into. So there was an the element of that. And obviously, Dr. Petra Boynton, who is the uh, you know the Telegraph's agony aunt, and just but a leading social psychologist in the field of relationships. So, a lot of people were very relevant. But a lot of the time, it was just me scrolling through my phone book, saying who might possibly talk to me who is relevant here. So, but like some like I spoke to Charlotte Church, for example. She, but she was I thought a very, very, very um. A poignant person to speak to on the subject of fame because she became internationally famous at age 12 and that's a very rare experience so you know, she was performing for presidents and on movie sets and from other major pop stars and huge concerts and stuff and she's like a small town welsh girl like me so i think we'd have something relevant there And i wanted to see what how how that affected her well did that make her happy if not why not if it did what was it and but i wanted to speak to her uh, but then as I was getting ready for bed one night, I just got a text out of the blue from Rod Gilbert, who I ended up speaking to as well. And she's saying, "Do you a friend of mine is doing a, a one-woman musical show about the neuroscience of love and would like to speak to a neuroscientist who knows how comedy works. So I said, you might be relevant. She oh yeah, well, I think there aren't that many, <laughs> many of us out there in the Cardiff area. So I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I was speaking to Caris Evans, who it turns out was, and she's also mentioned briefly in the book as well. And she sent me her CV, which just because she's just like wanted to make sure, like, show me she was legitimate, which I didn't ever doubted. But there we go. And she said she's one of the choir on um, Charlotte Per, Charlotte Pop Dungeon. And I said, "Oh, I actually, was looking to speak to Charlotte. Do you are you good enough friends that are on a message?" And she said, "Well, I'm in the car there now. We're going bike riding because they are our best friends." <sighs> so basically, it was just a case of, "Oh yeah, so I do know these people," and I, I feel like I owe a lot of people an apology because when you um, become a Welsh person with any sort of level of media notoriety or you become a sort of a known person uh, who is Welsh. And a lot of people will end up asking you, oh, you're Welsh, do you know Rob Brydon? Do you know Anthony Hopkins? Do you know Tom Jones stuff? You know." And I've always been quite short with people saying, look, I know it's a small country, but there are millions of us, so we don't all know each other. Please stop being so... Dense, but it turns out we do all know each other because that's what it just proved and I feel like I feel really bad about judging people for assuming that we all are all our friends so um so yes so that it was a lot of time it was just who do I know who is relevant who has got key experiences on this but when it comes to favorite interviews um I really like talking to Charlotte Church because it was like the revelation which I won't go into too much here because I don't want people to not buy the book in the end but of what was more important to her uh, than the you know, international fame was really quite eye-opening. And I think I, I really like talking to Girl on the Net, the, the sex blogger, because you know, we've become good friends over Twitter over the years. I, I like to think she does for sex, what I will try to do for neuroscience, trying to sort of demystify it, make it relatable, make it entertaining as best we can. And like, we have a sort of similar ethos there. And it was interesting talking to her and sort of all her experiences, like what, you know, how much, does you know, an active and very varied sex life make you happy? Does it? Is that something you're into? And it was the fact that her uh, sort of assessment of what she's learned by, let's call it experience, was very consistent with what, what the experts were saying, like Dr. Boynton, the relationship expert, and the things she concluded and the advice she would give like from a very informed, very academic, uh, very well-read and studied Perspective was the same sort of basic uh, conclusion that someone who's lived it uh, would would come up with. So that we you know, it does show that maybe there is a lot of useful advice in that part of the book, at least. So yeah, I was very, I was quite happy to find that too. You know, not not planned at all, but none of this was.
2: This is kind of um, like a big question, but
1: can anyone be happy? Um, I've actually been asked this a couple of times already, but I think everyone who asks me this has a different sort of interpretation of what it means, but. Based on what uh, I've found out, I think everyone has the underlying mechanisms inherent in their brain to experience happiness. I think that is, barring, of course, major traumas or massive surgeries, but that's always the caveat which you've got to put into these things. So I think everyone has the ability to be happy. Uh, But then again, sort of everyone has the ability to, the, the physical ability and the what's required to fly a plane, but it doesn't actually mean you can do it. It's uh it takes a lot of time and effort and practice. So some people will be less inclined towards being happy. Some people are very predisposed to find the negative in everything. And it really depends on uh the obviously genetics are going to play a part in this, but it depends on your background, your upbringing. Like I know a few people who are twins and they are very different people each of them like as at one point like, they grew up in very similar environments very exactly the same parents same schools and everything but you know, as they matured and then went their separate paths they lived different lives and that leads to uh different outcomes and different outlooks on life and you know people are happy and people can be happy but it, it really depends all the time on the circumstance like if you are someone who is living hand to mouth on the breadline and you've got like family support and your partner just left and you know, your, your house is falling down or your rent's going up and you, know, you have, if you have no control over these devastating factors, then you're not gonna be a happier person, are you? you're not gonna be able to say, I am happy now, because your circumstances don't allow that. But doesn't this you know, the people like in those situations are gonna be higher risk factors for you know, the, the the lack of happiness in their lives, but it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, someone who's living in such dire straits. Like people who are like big celebrities or well, tend to be unhappy as well. Like they, they have their own issues and problems to deal with. And just having, having something which other people would say should make you happy doesn't necessarily make it the case. And so, yeah, so I think everyone has the underlying ability to be happy, but whether it's going to be lasting, whether it's going to be persistent or whether it's going to be easy, that very much varies from person to person. Can happiness ever have a downside? I'll say yes to that, actually, based on everything I've read, in that it's good to, subjectively, if you're happy, you're happy. That's good. You know, It's very hard to be happy and not see the good side of that. But in terms of longer-term consequences, then yes. I mean, there's a very interesting study I found uh, in the uh, in the third chapter, which shows that for all this discussion or all this obsession in the sort of business world of, having employees be happy uh, because a lot of the data says that happy employees are more productive I think the stat I found is that they are like 37 percent more productive so if you have 100 happy employees they're like doing the work of 137 for no extra cost and however you think of your employees if you're a business manager or if you're a a CEO even if you think your employees are all worthless scum if you make them happy you get more out of them and that's Going to be a a very important thing for any business which wants to earn profit. So, but despite this happiness, it's this this theory that happy employees are better and more useful. Lots of evidence suggests that they're not necessarily that's not that's not necessarily the case because people who are happy tend to be more selfish by all accounts, and that they are more concerned with their own happiness than they are than, than that of others. And you could argue that's a chicken and egg situation. Are they? happy because they're selfish because they look after themselves more than anyone else do they put themselves first therefore they've achieved their own happiness as a result so you know, that's you know that's a circular reasoning thing but it, it is, there doesn't even be a link there and people who are persistently happy can often be more devastated or more or hit harder by it when something does go badly wrong and which which does happen because life is essentially random you know you live long enough something bad will happen to you be it low-level trauma or some just minor irritation, which build up over time. But some evidence suggests that people who are, they have a predisposition to be happy, will be made a lot more unhappy by setbacks, because they're not used to it. They don't have any sort of ability to cope with it. And that's another thing which seems to come up in that people who only ever have good things happen to them, they're kind of, let's say, stunted in a sort of, developmental sense, the concept of emotional competence. Like The more varied and different emotions you experience over time, the more capable you are of processing them, of dealing with them. And you become sort of a more rounded person for it. Like people say you don't, don't really have the ability to, you know, you're less likely to form a successful relationship if you've not had a bad one before, if you've not had one go wrong. Because it gives you this awareness, this knowledge, this understanding of how things work. And it sort of explains a lot why people like who are in the most privileged positions who have never had to deal with any hardships tend to be, let's say, less pleasant people overall if the current you know, political climate is anything to go by. So, you know, I don't like to get into the politics thing, but I will say that much. So, yeah, it, you know, it does suggest that happiness itself is good, but pure happiness all the time. That's not an ideal way to be. So just as one uh, sort of final question to, to round things off.
2: Do you think science will ever reach a point where it can make definitive statements about the origin and effects of happiness in the brain? Or will it always remain somewhat ine- ineffable? And what? how do you feel about that if that is the case?
1: This question actually comes up surprisingly often in that it's really hard to see where things are going to go in terms of how we can study the brain, even like in the next like 50 years or so, because... Technology develops so fast now and so readily and like things like fMRI scanners weren't even thought of 50 years ago. But now we can monitor the activity of a living brain and we do so all the time. And it's you know, it's, it's weird to think that that happens so fast. So to be able to say yes or no regarding will we ever understand these things in the human brain is isn't something I'm even like able to do with any authority. Not that I have much authority the best of times, but specifically in this instance. And it is, but it's interesting to see. Like one of the problems I find with talking about stuff like this or studying things like this, it's very, it's surprisingly easy to almost like wander into the field of philosophy. Sometimes, when you don't actually think, well, what am I talking about here? Like this, like I can say these neurological processes occur, but then when it comes to the conscious experience of these things, then you're sort of into. Are we talking about Cartesian dualism here or we wandered into quantum mechanics and stuff? So it becomes a far more sort of subjective or sort of a meta uh, thing to look at. And that becomes like uh, my, my PhD was in behavioral neuroscience. I'm technically a behavioral neuroscientist by training. And one of the things that behavioral neuroscience does, it essentially ignores the mind, as we would understand it not because it doesn't think it exists or anything, It just that what What can you do with it in a scientific sense? Like how, how big is a mind? What, Where does it end? What color is it? Doing? You can't actually measure a mind in any objective, replicatable way. And that sort of makes it scientifically redundant in many ways. So then when we talk about happiness, as in like the, the, the dedicated conscious experience of it, then we're sort of wandering into that territory of, Okay, so we, I can show you in the brain. Maybe I can show you the brain like these parts of the brain are all integral for what people report as happiness. But then we then we're sort of wandering into the the sort of the cognitive, the consciousness aspects, and then then you know, will, can we even look at such a thing with the technology we have to have? I don't know, but. I don't think necessarily it would be a good thing to say that you know, if we were able to say, look, here's how happiness works in the brain. Take these pills. You'll be happy forever. That doesn't sound like a useful thing to achieve. That sounds like, you know, it's like sort of like reading the end of the book first, not my book, any book, just say, OK, that's what that is. And you know, that's, sort of, that's not the point of it. Like happiness is something which is meant to be like a motivator. It, it's from what I can as is my understanding now, it's something we you know. It's a sense of reward we feel when we've done something right, when we've done something we enjoy, when we've succeeded at something. And for these things to have any value, then you know, not getting them shouldn't make you happy. And that's why things like hard narcotics, like they constantly trigger the reward pathway of the brain, to give us this blissed-out state without any of the intervening stages of like when you do something or achieve something or accomplish something or just. do something which the brain would recognise as being a good thing. That's what happiness and pleasure are supposed to be responses to. So to just hijack the whole system and just trigger it automatically, that that doesn't really seem like something that would have any really useful outcomes insofar as we as a species exist.
0: That was neuroscientist, comedian and science writer Dean Burnett talking about his latest book, The Happy Brain, the science of where happiness comes from and why. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. In our May issue, which is on sale on the 2nd of May, we take a look at human body farms. These facilities could help forensics learn more about how our bodies rot, which could help them in solving crimes. In this issue, we also take a look at how emotions trick your brain, investigate whether psychological profiling can turn Facebook likes into votes, find out the sneaky ways that social networks are built to make you binge, and discover whether pollution could be leading us to a fertility crisis. Did you enjoy this podcast? If you liked what you heard, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, and many of your favourite podcast apps.